Well, amen. Thank you so much for the return invitation. I didn't realize it was four years. Man. I mean, you didn't know that because you weren't here. Aaron asked me to speak and then skips town usually. He decided to, uh, to hang around this time. Did you know that we met 15 years ago? That's crazy. I was doing the math on the way here because I was, I was like, how do we make the connection that that Aaron and I know each other, and it's been 15 years. It's like, wow, that's, that's a bit. Um, the Lord was good and brought Aaron to uh, Virginia and Jessica to Virginia, and they were our neighbors over in the apartment complex for a while. We got puppies together. That's not euphemistic for kids. We literally got puppies at the same time. Um, and then we moved, and they moved, and then we had three kids, and now they're playing catch-up. So it's a blessing to be with you for lots of reasons, but uh, it's always good to speak in a church that's well-led. And you are. You are well-led. One of the things I can say about... Uh, I shouldn't have made fun of him. (laughs) One of the things I can say about Aaron is that uh, we've known each other for 15 years and he's the same guy. That doesn't mean he hasn't grown. He has grown immensely in many ways. But he is the same person. Uh, that he was 15 years ago. And that's, that's a blessing for me to be able to come to you and to say that, and to say that uh, what you have in, in Aaron is, is authentically who he is and who he has been uh, for as long as I've known him. And so you are greatly blessed. I'm going to continue your series through the letter of Titus today. And we are at the beginning of Titus chapter 2. And I told Aaron, I said, man, are you sure you want to give up this, uh, this section here? Because this is a powerful section, a powerful passage, the first part of Titus chapter 2, that goes right into where you are as a church, which is seeking someone to lead your next generation ministries and to help your church maintain its intergenerational uh, status, which is which is so healthy, and chapter two gives us that picture of what that looks like. You just sang a song that says Jesus changes everything, and that's really what this passage is about. Because Paul has told Titus in chapter one what the Cretan culture is like. Now, I don't know how much time you spent on that, so I'll just repeat the one line that Paul used that was from a philosopher of that day, that the Cretan culture is like this. They are always liars. They're evil beasts and they're lazy gluttons. Their evil has made them almost non-human. And they are lazy except for when they're trying to fill up or be gluttonous on the things of the world. 
And I was like, man, is he talking about Crete or America? Like, this is rough. But when you look at this, I mean, this is the day and the age that we live in currently. One comfort that I gain from that is that what we're seeing now in our culture is not new. It's not like the gospel has never engaged an evil, lazy, gluttonous, lying, inhuman culture. It has. And it did here on the island of Crete. And that's important backstory before we get into chapter 2. Because at the beginning of chapter 2, he starts this way. But as for y'all, for the church on Crete. In other words, he's like, let me talk about the contrast between Cretan culture and Jesus culture. Let me talk about what Jesus culture is going to look like on the island of Crete and on the Jesus movement that's happening here in the midst of this evil, lying, lazy, gluttonous culture. You guys aren't supposed to look like that because Jesus has changed everything. Let me tell you what you guys are supposed to look like. He said, first, it's going to begin with how you teach, how you lead. He says, but as for you, contrast, y'all are going to look different. Teach what accords or what lines up with sound or healthy doctrine. So first of all, he's assuming that we have a good base here. That we have a base of healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, that we're teaching the right stuff. I don't have a doubt on that today when I come into your church, and that's really good news because we can move past this part and go, hey, I think that you're being led in the right direction doctrinally, but it's clearly more than that happening in this passage. And then he's going to go through some different age groups, which tells us that the Cretan Jesus movement is multi-generational. A healthy church is multi-generational. It's encouraging to look out here and to see a multi-generational church. There are far too many churches that are a majority of one age range. That everybody looks the same and everybody acts the same. That's not healthy. It's good to have seasoned saints and seasoned saints it's good to have children and teenagers really good you go into a lot of churches especially smaller churches in america and you will see that the age range of the church as a whole is creeping up 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 no student ministry to speak of no children's ministry to speak of because they don't exist that's sad The diagnosis for all those churches isn't always the same. It's not that they're always struggling with the same stuff, but I will say there has to be some flexibility in the older generations when you're sharing space with the younger generation. Blessed are the flexible, for they will not be broken. By the same token, I am so glad to see a church filled with 
young families that have not pushed out the older generation. Because that's sad in the opposite direction. Because it says we have nothing more to learn from you. Which isn't true. We're tired of your ideas. That's not true. We're tired of the history lessons. That's not true. It's not good and it's not helpful. And so verse 2, older men are to look like this. Your sound or your healthy doctrine is going to overflow in your life in this way. You are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound or healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul loves lists. He just goes on these, these, these tangents in all of his letters. I just finished teaching a class at our church on uh, all of Paul's letters. And uh, man, he just loves lists and then not explaining them at all. Just, just I'm going to just, bap, bap, dip, 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 and then just go, I, you, you, just, you just need to know. You just need to know what I'm saying here. And there's a lot of things that we can glean from these lists. And to the older men, of the church, he's saying, first of all, be sober-minded. Be the serious ones. Be the ones who are helping us stay focused on the right stuff. Don't be silly. This is contrasted with the first thing that he says to the younger men, where the first thing and kind of the main thing that he says to younger men is he's like, guys, be self-controlled. There's purposeful contrast there. He looks at young men and he says, young men, control your passions. He looks at the old men and say, be serious. Don't check out. Don't retire from your responsibilities. That doesn't mean don't retire from the the nine to five. Don't retire from Jesus. And don't retire from your responsibilities to the next generation. I hear a lot of, of, of men and women above a certain age get up and, and, and begin to pontificate or get on Facebook and, and write lengthy posts about the next generation. And it's just heaping up negativity on negativity about the next generation. And I go, but who are you investing in in the next generation? Who have you intentionally come alongside and said, would you like to study the Bible together? Would you like to pray together? Can I come over and just talk? We've said the same thing at our church before, and we'll have older men come up to me afterwards and say, well, I'm, I'm available to do that. I'm just waiting for a young man to come and ask me. And I understand. But I'll also sit there and go, that's probably not how it's going to happen. It's just, it, it, that, is, that is unusual. Young, driven men will look up to older men and say, will you lead me? Will you help me? But he, a lot of young men don't even understand the value of doing that because they've never had an older man invest in them intentionally. But older men lead the way with a serious mind. And then next, dignified. 
Act like an older man. Don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to be young. It's funny, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in a weird age right now. I'm 33, which means I'm too old for the teenagers. Now, I'm officially, like, incredibly uncool. I wasn't cool to begin with, so I was like, this, this isn't like a new thing, okay? But, like, I've officially just gone over that hump of, like, wow, he's, he's really a dad now, you know? You know, because the middle schoolers, I mean, re- you know, really almost all of them are like, dude, you're old enough to be my dad. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. But I'm not quite old enough for the old heads to look at me and say, oh, yeah, you're like one of us. I'm like stuck in a weird in-between stage right now. I'm not sure like what to do with my hands, right? So, you know, I've got some older men that I'm going to and I'm saying, okay, just so then help bring me along. But I'm also going to some young men and I'm like, let me help you come along in this journey as well. Be dignified. Act your age. You know, I work with teenagers the vast majority of the time and teenagers don't need adults to act like teenagers. It's weird. Um, They need you to act like adults. And show them how to grow into that stage of life. But also they need patience because they are teenagers and they're going to act their age. And that is okay. You didn't know who you were at 16 either. (coughs) Self-controlled. As a model to the young men. Self-controlled. That... That, that's going to mean a lot of things, but let me just encourage our older men with this one aspect of self-control. Don't be so quick with your opinion, especially your very strong opinions. Part of the reason the younger generation isn't talking to you is because you're very quick with very strong opinions. The younger generation will listen to you if you will listen to them. That's a cooperative movement of listening, of investing. Also, you'll learn a lot about the younger generation by listening. It's easy to go off on tangents and long speeches when you're talking to a young man or a young lady. But part of self-control is your willingness to sit there and listen Even if some of what they're saying, you're like, oh, this is a bad idea. Oh, oh, wow. Mm, mm, mm." Just listen. Teenagers like to process verbally, which means sometimes they're going to say some things that it's going to make you wince and cringe a little bit. But it's okay. Let them talk it out. Ask good questions. They're not looking for a speech, but... They would appreciate a listening ear. What else does the gospel do? It says, you will be sound or you'll be healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Faith, you're going to continually be leaning on Jesus in every way. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him so that He directs your paths. 
in love. Now, this is not just affection, especially physical affection, but I'll tell you what, the, 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 the greatest older men that have invested in my life are men who were affectionate. You'd probably consider the same thing in your lives. For some of you, maybe you never had an affectionate older man in your life. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean that you can't be. Love is also selflessness. That the younger generation is not there to serve you. But that by serving alongside you, you might serve Jesus together. That's what love does. And finally, steadfastness. Knowing who you are, knowing who Christ is, knowing what Christ has for you to accomplish within this multi-generational, intergenerational body. Also knowing what hills to die on. It goes back to that aspect of being self-controlled, men. If you plant your flag hard on every issue... The next generation doesn't know what issue is actually worth fighting for and what, what things we can give a little ground on. We can't care hotly about every single issue. And if you talk to the younger generation, and as I talk to a lot of teenage guys and ask them about their relationships with their fathers, their grandfathers, things of that nature... I'll tell you just because I'm not talking to them and their parents, but I'll let you in on it. One of the things that frustrates the next generation more than anything else is that they watch you be very passionate about things that they're not passionate about, and then they watch you be very disinterested in things that they are passionate about. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. If you'd like to get a group of older men very passionate, just bring up politics. You say, well, those young men should be passionate about that. Okay? Through the right lens, though. Through a gospel lens. Knowing that America isn't forever. That the new heaven and the new earth is not setting up a forever America. That that's not where we're spending eternity. And yes, as Paul has said in other places, we want to live quiet and peaceable lives. We want good leadership. We want godly leadership. We would love for our leadership to reflect true justice, God's justice. But when that doesn't happen, how do we respond? And then look at the response of the New Testament church. What do they do? They get really big on who is Jesus. Older women, likewise, verse 3, are to be reverent in behavior. Again, act your age. But also, this goes a little bit beyond just act your age. This also comes to a point of being God-aware at all times. You say, why would he reserve that for his section where he's talking about women? And some of this is a little bit cultural, 
But in the ancient world, the women are spending a lot of time either by themselves or by themselves with kids or by themselves with other women. It's a lot of time alone with your thoughts and your feelings. Are you God aware in your thoughts, in your feelings, and in your behavior? And then he talks about some outflow and some intake. And he says, I don't want you to be slanderers, and I don't want you to be slaves to much wine. He said, so firstly, let me, as you are modeling life to younger ladies, he's like, older ladies, let me help you with two things, one intake and one outflow, two things that you do not need to teach the next generation of women to be about. He said, first of all, the next generation of women don't need to learn from you how to gossip and to speak poorly of others. And, he's like, secondly, the next generation of women don't need to learn from you that we handle our problems through wine. That's got to be like a really popular thing. Beyond popular, it's actually like expected almost. Culturally speaking, and I can say what I want because I'm not your pastor and I'm going to walk out, okay? But like, I came from a family where the family history on my dad's side was alcoholism. I've just not watched people who love alcohol do positive things with it. Now here's the thing, I'm not your pastor, and this is not thus saith the Lord, this is just Tim talking for a second. But he's like, you know what the next generation of women don't need to learn from you? is like, hey, every time we get together, let's have a glass. You know, elsewhere in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, another young pastor, he, uh, he addresses men about their hands, and he said, you know, the men are, are so quick to do this with their hands. He said, I wish y'all would do this with your hands and lift them up holy in prayer. And as he looks at the women, he goes, you guys are so quick to reach for the wine. He's like, can we not reach for something more productive? He's like, can we not just make a better choice with our intake when we get together? He said, I'd like you to teach and model what is good. And then he talks about what that looks like to train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. As the older women invest in the younger women, they teach them about the priorities in life. He says, what are your priorities? Love your husband. Love your children. Be self-controlled. Interesting that the commission to be self-controlled Paul gives to every age group. Control your passions. Have a governor on your passions. You know, all of us are looking for autonomy in a lot of different ways. The ability to control something. I want to control something. And Paul says, let me give you something to be about in your control. Your actions and your reactions. To be slow to speak. To be aggressive listeners, to be slow to wrath, 
in your actions and in your reactions. To pursue a pure life and working at home. Now you'll notice he says, he does not say only working at home. This is 2,000 years ago. So let's not misquote this into some kind of patriarchal weirdness here. He doesn't say, you know, woman, go home and shut up. Okay, that's not what he's saying here. Because even 2,000 years ago, he didn't say women only work at home. What is he saying, though? Home is hard work. If you want a good home, if you want a godly home, if you want a Jesus-centered, Jesus-transformed home, it's hard work. But a lot of times, we give everybody outside of our home our best effort. Because we need to look good in front of everybody else. And then we go home and it's like, ugh. And everybody at home gets the worst side of you, right? You're like, well, now I can relax. Now I can kick the shoes off. I can kick off the self-control. I can kick off the pursuit of Christ. And I can go, okay, how about, how's everybody else going to serve me and make my life better today? I would not even isolate this command to just the young women and the older women who are teaching them this. I would say, men, give your kids your best efforts. They're your kids. Like, don't outsource the discipleship of your kids to someone else. Granddads and grandmas, don't outsource the discipleship of your grandkids to your kids and then forget about it. Pour Jesus continually into your kids into your grandkids, and you say, okay, I'm not married, I don't have kids. That's amazing. Because you get to pick whoever you want and just go for it. That's so freeing. One of the beautiful things of the family of God is that if you sit in church and you go, man, I feel like I'm so alone and I'm the only lonely person here. I can guarantee that you're not, regardless of the size of your congregation. I have students that come from incredibly healthy families. Good dads, good moms, good siblings. And the, the, these are the students that are still come to my office and they go, man, I feel so alone. I'm like, how? Because we don't feel understood. This is not a sermon about student ministry, but it is part of who I am and what I do. And so let me just let you peek behind the curtain real quick at a couple things when it comes to teenagers. Teenagers have three big desires in life. Identity, belonging, and autonomy. Identity. Who am I? Who am I really? What am I about? What am I going to be known for? What am I good at? You say, well, my kid doesn't try anything. He just gives up at the first sign of failure. You know why? Because they don't want their identity to be, I'm a failure. 
That's why I have to push my young kids at home. We're going to try this anyway. My daughter, she's seven. She looked at me the other day when we were working on something. She said, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, why? She said, I'm not good at it. I said, that's exactly why we need to do it. I said, because you're not going to be good at everything. But that doesn't mean you're a failure. And teenagers and kids, like, let me just reach out to you just for a second here and just say, man, it's okay to be bad at stuff. It's okay to, be, to not be naturally amazing at everything. That doesn't make you a failure. It just makes you human. Because mom and dad aren't good at everything either. Mom and dad, we have to help our kids and our teens navigate failure because that's not easy. And sometimes embrace failure knowing that it's not our identity. Belonging, the second thing that I see the teenagers really desire, where am I loved? Where am I accepted? Who are my people? Mom and dad, make sure your kids sense that they belong at home no matter what. I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story of the prodigal son, right? He wanders, but it says when he came to his senses, what happens? He's like, I guess I'll go home. I'll be dad's slave, I guess. But I, I, dad will probably at least let me come home and be a slave. And it was so much better than that. But he knew that he belonged at home. Kids and teenagers, you're not going to belong in every room you walk into. You're not going to have a whole crowd of people who just love you and, and think you're amazing in every room you walk into. That's not life. What I find out that's interesting, though, is a lot of times I have a teenager come to me and they're, they're all self-conscious about something and thinking about what someone else is thinking about them. And we all do the same thing, which is really ironic. We all walk into a room and we think about the way others are perceiving me while everybody else is doing the same thing. The person next to you is thinking about how you're perceiving them. The person next to them is thinking about how you're perceiving them. And we're all just sitting there thinking about ourselves. And nobody's actually thinking about the person next to them. Love frees us to stop thinking about ourselves and how we're being perceived and to care deeply about the person next to us. Because it doesn't matter what they think. Because they're probably not thinking about you. But we can love and care deeply for one another. Paul breaks in the end of verse 7 and just makes sure that we know why is this important because we don't want the word of God to be reviled. We don't want the gospel message to be compromised by our mis behavior, our wrong thinking, our wrong feeling, and our wrong acting. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Young men, control your passions. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And when you teach, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned 
so that any opponent to the gospel may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It's interesting that he points to young men and he says, young men, I want you to be a model of good works. To who? And to everybody. Is anything... Is anything going to preach the gospel more than young men who are self-controlled models of good works? Good grief. I mean, that, that'll preach. That'll preach in the public square. That'll preach in your school, guys, on your sports teams, in your homes. To have young men who are self-controlled and model good work. But you know what? Older men, young men need someone to lead, lead them there. Help them get there with patience. With patience. With love. With belonging. Young men, if you're looking for autonomy, if you're looking for control, if you're looking for something in your life that you can be in charge of, here it is. Self-control. By the power of the Holy Spirit put a governor on our passion. We put a governor on our thinking. We don't do everything that comes into our mind. We don't indulge every emotion that we feel. We don't pursue every passion. We pursue Christ. Paul transitions to one more relationship in verse 9. And he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering or thieving, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So he takes it finally outside of the church building and outside of the home, and he says, let me talk about your workplace. To be submissive, to your master, to your boss, in everything. To seek to please, and to not be argumentative. Those feel harder than the next thing he says. He says, don't steal, next. And we're kind of like, okay, I think I can, you know, check that box. Not stealing seems pretty simple compared to the thing you just said, which is seek to please your boss and not argue Why? Because it's a show of good faith so that in every way the gospel, the doctrine of God may be adorned with good works. But as for you, so we started in verse 1. You are not supposed to look like the world around you. And it's okay when the world around us seems to be falling apart and we go, man, what are we supposed to do? That, that should be a natural reaction to things not going well. What are we supposed to do? Look different. And then he roots that in this intergenerational investment. 
says, if you really care about what's going on outside of the four walls, get in the four walls of your home and of your church and invest intergenerationally. These older men and women, if you're really concerned about the future, invest in the future. Younger men and women, if you want to grow and develop and be the best version of you that you can be as you follow Christ, go to an older man, an older woman, and say, can you help me? Go to someone that you look at and you go, man, I respect that person. I respect who they are. Can you help me get there? It's a beautiful thing within the body of Christ that we have this awesome opportunity to be about one another as an overflow of our being about Jesus. Jesus changes everything. From the inside out. That's how he changes us, from the inside out. That's how he changes things outside, too. From inside his body, as we go out. You didn't come here to do church today. You came here to be equipped so that you could be the church when you leave. This is not a ministry time. This is an equipping time. You have six more days of the week to do ministry. You're being equipped to go do ministry. Because the beauty of the gathering is because of the scattering that comes after. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are thankful that you loved us first. We are blessed by the opportunity to invest in one another, to love one another well. To be a people that are obsessed with Jesus so that as he changes everything inside of us, we look like him. We change things around us. We are thankful as kingdom citizens of heaven that we get to bring the kingdom of God with us everywhere we go. May we be faithful to do so this week. And may we be faithful within our bodies to invest well in one another especially intergenerationally, as you've encouraged us here today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who loves us. Amen.